Ayers on the Road, value-based parenting and life balance ideas from world-traveling family coaches. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. It's Richard and Linda Ayer. This is Ayers on the Road, a weekly podcast where we deal primarily with things that concern family and balancing your life between work, family, church, and play, and what else? Lots of things to COVID-19, earthquakes, you name it. (laughs) (laughs) But we're glad to be with you today. Linda's looking stunning today. If you could see her here, we're sitting in the mountains in Park City. It's a sunny day. Lots of new snow outside, and you just can't help. When you wake up on a morning like this, you can't help but feel good. It's a blue sky and snow everywhere at Park City. It's really beautiful. And I was thinking, Linda, how this show's evolved. You know, we've been doing this this podcast and radio show for 10 years, and the reason it was named Ayers on the Road is we used to be, 10 years ago, we were traveling constantly doing speaking and book tours and so on. And we would do this show from a different place every single week, it seemed, and hotel rooms and airports and and uh, subway stations. And, you know, our producers used to say, can't you get, find a quiet place to broadcast from? And life was pretty crazy then. Compare it to now. Nobody's going anywhere. Although those of you who listen know we've been five, six weeks in London welcoming two little twins to our youngest daughter's family. Um, We have had quite a year, as we know you have. We wish sometimes we could just sit down with you by the fire and talk about it. In fact, today I'm talking to my high school friends who we've finally been able to connect with. Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. And um, it really is interesting what's happened to their lives in the last uh, nine months. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. We just hope you're all doing well. We wish you well. We hope you're staying well. We hope you're being careful. A vaccine is on the horizon, thank goodness. And just just be diligent for another few months and we should be past this thing. Except for those of you who've already had it. Yeah. Or exactly. have it. We're yeah. sorry, but We started last time with a theme. uh, We're on this theme of stories. We love telling stories and different kinds of stories. And we we started last week with election stories because we're all thinking about elections. But we dropped back into time a little bit. and, And we admitted that I admitted that I got bit by the political bug as a young man. And I never quite got over being a politico in some ways. And... We have had some amazing stories, and most of them kind of are intertwined with family. All of you know who listen regularly that family is our thing, and not only on the micro of our own family, but the macro of families in society and in our culture and so on and so forth. And it seems like all of our election stories and our involvement in elections and in campaigns and in politics have all centered around what what the larger institutions of government could do or should do for the smallest, most basic institution of the family. And most important institution. Um, that is the seedbed of our society, and we're, we are losing that somewhat. And we'll talk about that in the second half a little bit. Um, but we have had a lot of fun with these stories. We have had a lot of 
um, election stories. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't call you, uh, you I had to, I've had to drag Linda into politics, kicking and screaming at times, but <laughs> we often uh, thought if she'd run for governor instead of me, uh, she would have been elected. Yeah, for sure would have, <laughs> but um, to be just to, uh, just a little secret on the inside. I, we did, Richard did run for governor. We're going to uh, get to that story today. All right, today. kids, we're coming to that. And I must say, I am so happy that he lost. <laughs> Even though we have a peop some people listening, probably, who were wonderful helpers. It was a fabulous experience. Oh, we made so many friends. We had so much fun, but it was, uh, it's afterwards that's hard. So Yeah, we'll get to that one. But where we left off last week, this is part two of election stories. And last week and if you want to go back and catch up if you didn't hear we were talking about young young richard and linda and being involved in national campaigns and and working for george romney mitt's father and then for nelson rockefeller and doing a lot of national campaign things and ending up forming a campaign consulting company that operated in washington for many years but we had just gotten to the point last week linda of we were getting ready to run for Congress in Utah, and then we were called by our church to go and serve as a mission president and mission president leaders in London. And that put an end to our political thinking, and, and that stopped us in our tracks from running for Congress. Probably a good thing, because as much as I knew about politics, I didn't have a very well-formed ideology. I would have probably been a disaster as a congressman. But now let's pick it up, Linda. We're in England. Our time is filled with doing humanitarian and missionary work and supervising 200 to 250 great young missionaries from all over the world, not really having time for politics. But something really interesting politically was going on in England. Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, as they called her, an arch-conservative, was becoming the prime minister after many years of rule by the Labor Party. And we became real Margaret Thatcher fans. <coughs> she seemed to have a power about her and a conviction and a clear, a clarity of what she thought ought to happen, which essentially was less government and more private enterprise. And she privatized everything from the railroads to the utilities and she didn't, well, didn't take no for an answer. She is called the Iron Lady for a reason. She was amazing, and we loved what she did. We, uh, but we left uh, England just as she was elected her her second term. And uh, I don't know if they call it term or not. Well, they, remember, she, anyway, yeah, she, she'd just been reelected, but. Uh, when we went back, elected we went, by Parliament, of right. course. Right. We went back ten, um, ten years later, so that our little kids could experience what our older kids did. We had so much fun with our kids while we were there. When we left, our oldest was five, and we had four, and then we had two while we were there, and then we came back and had three more. So when we went back, <laughs> that sounds crazy right now, but that's what we did. Anyway, we went back. And 10 years later, and the whole country was different. Oh it my was gosh. amazing. She transformed what she England. Done. She brought it into the modern world, Margaret Thatcher did. And we, we don't want to get too political here because some of you may be English and you may have thought Margaret Thatcher was a disaster. Who knows? But she was interesting. And one thing we loved about her, because we'd been so entrenched in politics before going to England, 
we love the way that British campaigns run. I mean, here, when we choose a president, it's a two-year affair. It goes on and on. It never stops. It just gets... Maybe three years, so, yeah. They just start running as soon as and they the other win, one especially starts. Congress people. But in England, the prime minister calls an election, and it happens in three weeks. Right. And for three weeks, every Brit is intensely interested. It's like Wimbledon. When, when, when the English have the Wimbledon tennis tournament, for two weeks... People that don't even care about tennis become engrossed in it, and that's a funny comparison. But when when they call a national election in England, people just roll up their sleeves, get intently into it, have the vote, and it's over. It's amazing. They are they are each able to hire the very best PR company that they can, and they all have equal time. I don't know if it's still like that or not. No, but it is equal time on, on the, the BBC. BBC. And to present their case, and then it's over after three weeks. How would we like that? Wouldn't we? I would l- love that. <laughs> and they they don't have to buy thirty second or one minute spots. They have longer forms on the BBC yes, on television. So they television. can actually present. They a can platform. actually present their platform. They can actually present their case. Margaret Thatcher was brilliant at that. She had all kinds of metaphors from runners on a racetrack. She explained why she believed in less government and why she had to privatize the public sector and why we're more efficient when we're when there's a profit motive and so on. And she really, edu- in three weeks, she educated the country on the cause of conservatism. Anyway, enough, anyway, enough yeah, of that. We on. admired her. Anyway, then let's move ahead. We came home after our three years and it was 1980 and, and my background in politics, um, greased the skids, so to speak, and I I started working for Ronald Reagan. I wrote a campaign plan for Ronald Reagan's presidential campaign, basically a grassroots organizing campaign. A man named Bill Casey was the campaign campaign manager, and I worked directly under him, and we we put together this plan. And um, I loved Reagan. I thought, "Here's, here's the American Margaret Thatcher. And, and he got elected, as we all know, in 1980, and that was quite a time. Uh, we happened to have one, our, our, we had a baby, our son Noah was born on November on the, on 2nd, the day 1980, on the day Reagan was yeah. elected. That was amazing, uh, our seventh child. It was a really wonderful time. <laughs> and so... And so there it was. I mean, and, and I, we could tell more more stories about that. I will just say that Reagan was a breath of fresh air in many ways, and and we felt so good about America. Well, when we that moved era. back to Washington D.C., and you were the um, chairman of the White House Conference for Families for Children and Families, and it was really <clears throat> a fun time. We love living in Washington. Well, we learned then about how uh, you know this transition period between the time Reagan got elected and the time he took office, and we're in that trans- transition period now, and it's so troublesome and we're so divided, but in those days it was very orderly and the transition team was set up and those of us who'd worked in the campaign began to look through great huge federal books of what the positions were that the president could appoint and to try to pick out the ones we wanted or the ones we thought we were qualified for and we didn't want to become bureaucrats. We didn't. We looked at the possibility of, of an undersecretary position, actually, and talked with uh, with some people about it. 
But we thought, hey, why don't we just go for a year or two? And here's this conference, a White House conference on parents and children, on families, the very thing we're most interested in. And we can just do it for a year and be done. And as it turned out, we ended up doing it for less than a year because some of you remember, right? Reagan was shot, wounded, and he shut down a lot of those kinds of things and passed the money on to the states. But it was still a, an interesting experience to be there. We had an office across the street from the White House, the best office I've ever had. Remember that office? <laughs> yeah, it was beautiful. <laughs> um, but it was great for us to be back there with our family. We started there, and then we were back there. We really love Washington, D.C. But it gave us, going on. Well, it gave us that <clears throat> hybrid. The two things we, over the course of our lives, have been most interested in professionally were, were politics and families. And here was a political conference focusing more national attention on families, which was a pretty great thing for us. Anyway, I, I'm going to say this, Linda, we, we then, we, we were done with politics. We thought, let's, you know, we got involved in other things. We got involved with writing books on, on work and life balance and, and speaking and doing other things. We were lucky enough to, to have some bestsellers. And we thought we were done with politics. And then there came a time in Utah when there was an empty governor's chair. The governor was retiring, Governor Bangeter. The seat was open. The political bug had infested itself inside of us. And, <laughs> we and you. <laughs> we, no, I will say we. We decided to run for governor. It should have been you instead of me. No, but anyway, <laughs> we had a lot of fun. The kids had a lot of fun. We found an old building. Every kid had their own office in this old building. And we had so much help. So many good people just came out of the woodwork and helped us and uh, raised money. And did, we did lots of events and so on. And, and it was really a fun time. We're going to take a brief break. We're going to tell you a little more about the stories of that gubernatorial campaign. And then we're going to roll it into some conclusions about what we wish politics was today. So hang on. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Ayers on the Road. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. And we're back. We are having fun today talking about um, the things that really matter in, and the things that really don't matter. That's exactly right. So, Linda, what are you, I mean, what are your... <laughs> Do you remember how hard it was to uh, make that decision to run for governor? And do you yes. do you remember it as me wanting to and you not wanting to, or was that did we kind of come to that? Oh, I I just <laughs> kind of succumbed. I could tell you're not going to be happy until we did this. But and I've said it was really fun, and in the end, it was kind of relief. We should we should um, bring in one you, other. I, I do have to say, you spent the year before that writing a book called yeah. Utah in the year 2000, which. You spent more time on that than any book I think you've ever read. Well, and we spent time on it. We had quite a time the year before that election. While we were trying to decide whether to run for governor, we went and visited every single town in Utah. Not unlike... There I mean, were there were 280-something towns. There may right. be more now. Well, we rented an RV, and we just had a fabulous summer. We just went from town to town, and then you would run in and call KSL Radio in the little town where we were because 
It was really we were interesting. Doing a, we had a, a radio lot show of called The Blue Roads of Utah. The, the ones on right. the map that aren't red, they're not freeways. They're, we stayed on these blue roads. Boy, so, we met a lot of interesting people. We surely did, and we had a grand adventure. We had a little dog with us, and after a while, I kept saying, "You kids, some one person has got to feed this dog. This dog is getting fatter and fatter and fatter every day." I just <laughs> one person read him, that. and then one day we went back in the shower in the back, and that dog had had seven puppies. <laughs> it was crazy. So we had nine kids and and, uh, and seven little puppies plus the mom puppy in this little motorhome driving from one town <laughs> to the next and uh, getting to know Utah from the ground level. It was really, really fun. We had um, a marvelous time and it was worth it all just to get to know Utah. You know, it was great. And then as you said during the campaign, and some of you, not to bore you, but, but we won the Republican convention, but not by far enough to avoid a runoff. And in that runoff election, Mike Levitt soundly beat us, and that's where Linda was so happy because <laughs> we were done <laughs> well, with Well, Mike politics. is a great guy, and we knew Mike and Jackie, and they went forward and took the flag on and did a wonderful job for Utah. The only other election stories we want to tell are, and you mentioned we had a little train. We drove around Salt Lake in with all our kids, and what was that thing called? Old Salty. Old Salty, yeah. <laughs> and we had an old Went building. To neighborhoods and the old Ford dealership down on Six South, where it was this huge campaign headquarters, and all our kids had an office. Yeah, I, they spent most of their time prank calling. <laughs> well, we found out one of them did spend some time prank calling, which is not a happy <laughs> announcement. Yeah, but anyway. we just admitted it. The only other th campaign stories. Then we want to roll this into some thoughts on politics today. We the probably the most fulfilling campaigns or elections we were ever involved in were bond elections and issues campaigns. We were able to plan and manage the, the campaign to build Symphony Hall. Uh, that, that's a tough one when you when you're trying to get people to vote to tax themselves a little more in order to build a public building. That's a tough kind of a, an election. You know, that's the time I remember that you learned to love ballet oh boy the, the ballet people came in and phone did calling and so on and the symphony people. players the symphony players came in big but, phone banks with all artists doing the work it was amazing but these ballet these men were coming in you know jumping over tables <laughs> and doing all these crazy things that you thought you were a cool basketball player but man those men were amazing well, what they could do and, and the the reason we were able to win that one is because we found that we could restore the the old Capitol Theater and build Symphony Hall for less money than to build one hall that would be a multi-purpose hall. And so the restoration people got behind us, the artists got behind us, and it was a great campaign. But we also did one to expand the, the Hogel Zoo. And we, we're big zoo people. We, you know, we, who knows how many times we've been to the zoo. So that was fun. And, and then the Salt Palace. And, the, and to expand the Salt the Palace. Salt Palace. Fun, yeah. And to expand the Central Utah Project. So four or five times we had the marvelous chance to run campaigns where there wasn't a candidate. There was no one who was going to disappoint you after he was elected. It was like, hey, you do it and it happens. The symphony hall was especially interesting because we passed the election, then we went on our mission, and when we came home, there was symphony hall, all yeah, built. We wonderful. just we just saw it. We got to know Maurice Bravanel and um, O.C. Tanner was wonderful to work with. It was great. But now let's turn to today, and 
I just want to, I mean, we're not trying to be divisive or controversial at all on Ayers on the Road, but I think we would speak for so many of you in saying, why has why has campaigning become so negative today? Why are we such a divided country? Why are there no moderates, it seems, in the middle and everyone's extreme on the right or the left? Why are we red states and blue states? Why are the best people not running for office, not choosing to run? I remember a time, Linda, where the finest business people, the, the highest ranked intellectuals, all were at least thinking, or, or many of them, about pol politics because that was a place they could make a contribution, become statesmen. Where are the statesmen today? Right. And, and we've, we've got such a nasty, expensive, special interest controlled process that most people of really high ability and intellect and potential never consider running for politics. Yeah, it's just too scary. It's too much. We so admire those who do, we have to say, because we've been through it and we know how hard it is. But wow, it is, it is an amazing process that somehow has gone awry. And yet, I want to say the positive. I mean, we're in the aftermath of this election now, and, and boy, we run into a lot of disgruntled people who just say, wow, we didn't you know, everything's gone belly up and we're so negative and we're so divided. But there, the bright silver lining, Linda, is we had the, the, by far the largest turnout in the history of presidential national elections. Right. Which means they're at least, I mean, and you may say, well, some people just voted because they're you know, afraid not to now, but with, with such huge issues hanging over us. But but people are involved, and I think we're going to turn the corner. I think we're going to have a civil... I, let me tell you one friend I talked to, and again, uh, don't read anything into this. This is just interesting. We have a friend who said before this election, I wish I could have President Trump's policies without his character or personality or whatever it is I don't like about him. and Or I wish I could have... Biden's calm, sort of unifying character, but without some of his policies that I think might be too liberal or too far to the left. And, you know, here's an optimistic thing. We, we didn't get the one. I mean, and you can't. You can't get a person's policies without his character. That's, that goes with the territory. But, but I'm starting to think, Linda, we did get the second one. We got we got Biden. I, I believe he will try to be a uniter. And I don't, and we didn't get his more liberal policies because I think we're going to have a Republican Senate. We've still got to wait for a special runoff election in, in Georgia for two Senate seats. But I think we'll have, you know, a, a president who will be balanced by a Republican Senate. So, you know, I'm optimistic. You, you are always optimistic, which I love about you, honey. And hopefully that's what it works out. We shall see uh, in the middle of COVID-19. Um, but, well, maybe toward the end. It's, it's so hopeful because we've seen, and I hope we've all been praying for this vaccine because it is going to make a huge difference. Right now, we're in uh, the depths of the pandemic, as we even as we talk. Um, there were... A, over 3,000, almost 4,000 cases yesterday.
yeah. uh, in Utah. So let and us, it's, uh, it's true all over the country. Let us share a couple thoughts. And this, this we're going to read a little from an article that we did. It's actually in Meridian Magazine. If any of you are interested in what we're going to talk about here for a minute, you can go to Meridian Magazine. Just Google it, and it'll bring it up. And this is an article called, Is America Still a Land of Promise? And we're just going to read you a titch from this and make a couple of closing comments. And this, this reflects our religion a little bit. And some of you may not belong or may, may not, it doesn't matter what faith you are or no faith, this still gets us to a certain point. So, scriptures teach us that America is a land of promise a phrase used dozens of times in the Book of Mormon. Indeed, we believe that our founding fathers were raised up by God to create a country where the restoration would take place and where freedom would reign. Most of us feel deeply blessed to live here and partake of this land's promised blessings. But is America still a land of promise? There's been a recent plethora of articles and commentaries on America's decline, on the end of the American century, on China taking over, American economy and economically and in the world uh, in, in world influence. This type of discussion and doomsdaying has become even more common during the pandemic, using America's inadequate response as evidence number one of our demise. Sorry, I moved the computer right while you were reading. <laughs> but uh, we, we comment there on an article by a Canadian named Wade Davis. Who, and this was in uh, the Rolling Stone magazine, of all things, in August, this past August. And he lists all these things that illustrate America's decline, that we're increasingly a warlike nation, that we're, we lead the world in, in the consumption of antidepressants, and, and uh, that we're workaholics, that we 24-7 is sort of our motto, and, and uh, we work 20... 20 more hours than day, than people in Denmark, and yet they earn more money than we do. And, and it just goes on and on. Uh, the gap, uh, growing gap between rich and poor, the base pay of those at the top in, in, a, in a commercial setting is 400 times that of their salaried staff. Just a lot of things that, that worry observers about America. And then this, this author says, COVID-19 exposed what had happened. It didn't cause it. It didn't lay America low. It simply revealed what had long been forsaken. The crisis unfolded and um, Americans dying at a faster rate than any other country and pointed out the inadequacy of our resolve as well as our leadership. And so his bottom line point is that, you know, the response, our inadequate response to covid was just a dark season of pestilence and COVID reduced to tatters the illusion of American exceptionalism and so on. Anyway, we, we, what we try to say in this article is, you know, here's what we have to recognize. Weaker families are the cause for all these points that he makes. They're not the effect. We don't have, we don't have poverty. We don't have dissolving and, and inadequate families because of poverty, although sometimes you make that arrow in that direction. We have poverty because of deteriorating families. Well, as we know, and as when raging by in the Black Lives Matter uh, series, 
um, they're so 75% of young black males grow up without fathers and there's so little instruction in the families. And so we kind of come to this conclusion. Let's just read you one more paragraph. The rapid decline of the basic unit of marriage and family is the means, the cause, the disease, and the potential cure. Everything else in society, good, bad, or good or bad, is a symptom, an effect, a result. Now that's a pretty bold statement, but we really do believe that the family is the basic unit. The individual's not the basic unit. That's too small and too self-centered. The town or the neighborhood's not the basic unit. That's too diverse and blasé about personal issues. The basic unit has to be the family. And when we get back to that, I think we will restore America to what it should be and hopefully always will be. It really is an amazing thing to think about. We're in a moment of history that we'll look back to for a hundred years, just like we did with the Spanish flu, which was a hundred years ago. It is a time when we really, it defines us. And it defines not just our country, but our own families and our own selves. So we hope you, th you think about that. Well said, Linda. And join us next time. We love you as listeners. We hope you're with us. And join us next time on Ayers on the Road. Bye-bye.